welcome to the 45th edition of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. We ended part one of our interview with ocean explorer Sylvia Earle and her daughter Liz Taylor, discussing marine technology and the promise of ocean exploration. We return in part two with Vicki and I listening as Sylvia discusses the ocean, the climate, and the carbon cycle, ocean life, and the lessons we still need to learn to turn the tide. Also, Liz talks about how COVID changed their last year, and Sylvia discusses her new book and her next one. Enjoy some more time with her deepness and her daughter. You know, we've only seen maybe 10% of the ocean. I'm not talking about the bottom or the top. I'm talking about the ocean. It's that wet part of the ocean <laughs> that, that occupies most of living space on Earth, where the greatest abundance and diversity of life is, where the carbon is. David, you're and, and, and Vicki, I know you're both really into the thick of climate discussions and and concerns and solutions. If we're going to have any long-term solutions, we have to face up to what we're doing to the ocean. Carbon cycle, life in the sea that sequesters carbon in the deep sea over long periods of time that we're now methodically disrupting, extracting wildlife by the ton, by thousands, millions of tons of carbon-based units. It's like burning forests. We're clear-cutting forests. We're clear-cutting the carbon from the ocean and allowing it to escape as carbon dioxide and methane once it comes out of the ocean. Either we eat it or it's discarded and it is no longer serving that vital function of carbon capture and sequestration. So now we know. I'm pretty excited because when the International Monetary Fund assigns a trillion dollars to the value, the carbon value of whales alive. I think we're making some progress. They just have to extend, obviously, that this that tuna count too, and so do shrimp, and so do cod, so do squid, for heaven's sakes, among the most persecuted animals on the planet. These are wild animals, and we've got policies that protect some wildlife, like migratory birds, international policies, that have come about only in the last, not even a century. You know, we, we, we're changing. We've begun to protect whales, live whales, but we certainly don't have that attitude about fish, except for the growing commitment by many nations to embrace at least 30% of the land and 30% of the ocean in the next 10 years. It's a good start. Doesn't mean we can trash 70% of the planet if we safeguard 30%, but it, we need to do at least that much very quickly to reverse the decline that I've witnessed, Liz has witnessed, you've witnessed, Vicky's witnessed, anybody who's been alive in the last 10 years has witnessed this remarkable time of decline of land, of water, of wildlife, of the ocean. So, And I've just been diving in Rangaroa and Fakarava and you know, these, these, what I call shark enhanced, not shark infested. Waters <laughs> where you Good term. So there's all this life abundant potential and, and to restore it. But most people are aware the ocean's got problems. They may not know what they are. What are people going to learn if they read your new book, Ocean, A Global Odyssey? You know, each of the chapters in this new book features a hope spot. One of uh, each one is one of now 140 places that individuals and communities are stepping up to embrace places they love with enhanced care. 
Uh, San Francisco Bay is a hope spot. It's not exactly pristine, but it's better today than it was a few years ago. Why? Because individuals are doing what they can, working with others as well as individually making choices, doing what they can to go from decline to recovery. So there are some wonderfully pristine areas like Palau, <laughs> for example, or where you've been recently diving, the south coast of Cuba, curiously protected over long periods of time. It's like diving 50 years ago to go to some of these places, whether they're protected deliberately or just because people were prohibited from going there. Whatever it takes, we now have examples of what we should aspire to attain for the ocean as a whole. That's certainly true in the deep sea. And, and all these wonderful remaining old growth forests on the land protect these ancient systems that serve as models. They're like ambassadors from the past, reminding us this is the goal. This, this is the planet that made our existence possible. And throughout the last 10,000 years, but especially in the last thousand and most particularly the last hundred, and even you know the, the pace has picked up enormously in the last few decades. We're taking we're better equipped than ever before to extract ocean wildlife and market it to distant places, to take oil and gas, to mine the earth, to market everything from everywhere to everyone. That is the downside of communication. The upside is now we know what we couldn't know before about the impact we're having on the systems that make our existence possible. We have to make that connection just like now, instantly, so that we can turn from <laughs> doing things that are causing harm to healing our relationship with nature. I'm a little optimistic now, to be honest with you, with a lot of our youth really um, taking charge and advocating for climate change. Um, we have a new administration that is advocating for 30 by 30. Um, we've got, you know, this bill in America the Beautiful. Are you seeing a sense of awareness and a shift or am I just being naive? No, I mean, there is definitely, <laughs> it seems logical. When you know, you can care. You can know and not care, but 10-year-olds are surrounded by insights that were not achievable when I was a child. No one had been to the moon. No one had looked back on Earth to see this biogeochemical miracle <laughs> that we call home. Nobody had been to the deepest part of the ocean either. You know, there were jokes about, well, maybe the moon is made of green cheese. Nobody knew, really. I mean, we knew, actually knew it wasn't green cheese. But being able to go and affirm that there are basic elements that make up the universe. This planet has this special characteristic called life. It's a living planet, possible because of the water that is here in a liquid form. There's plenty of water elsewhere in the universe, but it isn't just rocks and water. And the beginnings of life, it's taken four and a half billion years to get to where we now are. So Rachel Carson published a really important book in 1951 about the nature of the ocean. At the time, it was not known, she did not know that continents move around. It was not known that life exists from the surface to the greatest depths. No one had been there. No one had seen the con continuous existence of life throughout the ocean. 
No one knew about chemosynthesis, the synthesis of food in the absence of sunlight. That we don't really know how important that is. It's part of the carbon cycle, though. And until we really know, again, how can we be smart about how we relate to nature? The best thing we can do is to employ the precautionary principle <laughs> and to treat creatures, whatever they are, trees, <laughs> manganese nodules, consider them alive too, fish, whales, turtles, you name it, as we would like to be treated with respect. Right. And as you said, I mean, before she wrote uh, Silent Spring, Rachel Carson wrote The Sea Around Us and was really yeah. known for introducing the ocean to people. And then there was, when I was a kid, there was Sea Hunt with Lloyd Bridges and oh. then the Cousteau specials. And uh, your film, Mission Blue, is kind of about your life and, and Liz's and your family's uh, on Netflix for those who'd like to check it out. And with COVID, of course, you were traveling all over the world. Now, you and Liz kind of for the last year have been more focused on doing Zoom meetings and, and how sort of that changed your perceptions of, of communicating ocean love. There's no substitute for being there, as Liz points out sending a remotely operated vehicle, you can learn a lot and go places humans currently cannot easily go, but you can't drink the wine by looking at a picture. <laughs> I think we'll never go back to not Zooming. I think we will incorporate that as a midway point between just having our voices, which is a great asset right there that did not exist widely when I was a child, but now being able to pick up your cell phone and talk to people and look at your allies and friends across the globe is miraculous. And I think it, it's a dangerous thing in some ways and been the cause of some problems, but mostly I wouldn't give it up because when properly deployed, it really enhances our ability to understand. And we are, you know, for one thing, what Liz and I are doing with a dive in program that we have every other week is to get people to go dive in themselves. You know, we'll give them a taste and make it irresistible. Now you have to go and see for yourself that we can open the door, but you have to walk in and dive in. And Liz, what's it been like since the pandemic? Your mom, who's usually on the road like 365 days a year, has uh, been around more. Is that I'm yeah. sure it's a mixed effect overall? <laughs> yeah, no, the it was it was a nice time for her to be able to really focus in on on the book and and you know get a lot of files organized and and you know those things that we always put off. I think a lot of people put off a lot of the things around the house, so she was able to, to really get the library sorted and organized, which was awesome. And getting the book Those done, socks that were lost for a long time. But really, the you know the dive in series I think has been a real bridge for people and and really kind of really connecting them back into nature at a time when they were trying to figure out like, how can I explore closer to my home? How can I explore, you know, the environment around me? You know, the dive in program has been, I think, instrumental in that we've had a number of people that have watched every single episode and they go out of their way to, to join in. And many of them are teachers or, or students that just felt like it was a real connection point for them and, and very helpful during the pandemic to help connect those dots about human health and ocean health and planetary health are all intrinsically tied together. I've talked to people about, you know, just in the urban environment, you know, how much of your skin could you cover in duct tape and, and still expect your body to function normally uh, in talking about sort of this rampant 
overdevelopment and paving of every square inch of land. And David, you know, you certainly have been involved there with Point Molotti and, and trying to protect these these last remaining spaces. You know, the 30 by 30 objective is great, but I mean, it is kind of a low bar. Really, We could do a lot better. And that we can't just tweak the system a little bit and expect to come out in 10 years with a planet that functions in our favor. We inherited from our predecessors, well, <laughs> from nature, a planet that has just a remarkable system that is just right for us. And it would seem just in my lifetime, I've been a witness to what appears to be a deliberate effort to unravel the very systems that make our existence possible. The destruction of nature for short-time gain measured in, not necessarily even in human lifetime units, but in the next quarter units. Corporations always looking on taking more, more, more. And the, the, the resolve that is emerging to how do we work with what we've got how do we actually restore what has been damaged to recognize that every kid, every adult, we not only learn language and numbers, we need to learn the carbon cycle, the water cycle, the importance of life on earth to our existence, and not be casual about eating a steak, not to be casual about planting a house in a place where previously there has been a forest, but to understand there are costs. There's no free lunch, <laughs> no matter how you look at it. We need to think differently. And maybe, just maybe, the ocean will get more prominence in this COP26 as the driver of climate. And it isn't just, here's the thing, physical scientists, geologists have largely driven the climate conversation. What is emerging is the voice of nature. This is a living planet. There are plenty of places out beyond this in the solar system and beyond that have plenty of water, plenty of rocks. I mean, all the elements are there, basically the same elements that make up Earth, but in different proportions. This planet has benefited from life. Our lives are totally dependent. These ancient systems, these connections, largely initially microbial that are still with us, still shaping the chemistry of the planet. If we really could go back even 50 years, let alone 500 or 1,000, Knowing what we now know, what decisions, what choices might we have made in a different way than what we have now come to? Using nature as a free, free goods, ishing a fish with a zero accounting base, even now. Trees that take a thousand years to grow turned into lawn chairs and roofing material. What is with that? Now we know they, they should be sacred, sacred. And we just respect them and, and don't think that we have the right to destroy something that we don't know how to put back together again. And that includes the whole earth. And maybe at COP26, there'll be enough kids, enough representation, enough voices that will be heard who are speaking for nature, who are speaking for the ocean, who will awaken something that is probably there in all of us to be awakened. And that is the ethic, the empathy for life and the responsibility that we now have the sense of urgency that should be in everyday conversation. What are we going to do today to go from decline to recovery? What are you going to do? What, are, what, what can we do together? So COP26 might be a big disappointment, but if I think of it that way, it probably will be. But if I go, and I plan to go for part of this, with the attitude and with the commitment to do whatever I can to stir things up, 
to get people to look at the evidence, the reality, and really create the, not only the sense of urgency, but the sense of let's do it, the making it that we have the best chance we will ever have right now to secure an enduring place for humankind within the natural world that is still robust enough so that we can breathe the air without carrying tanks on our back when we walk around on the land, that, that water still magically falls out of the sky, sometimes too much, sometimes too little in places that have over long periods of time been adapted to another regime. But now we know, and that's really cause for hope. You've said Great. that beautifully. I'm counting on you to rile those folks up and to bring about some positive change. When you were last on our Writers for the Sea author panel, you were just finishing up this new book, Ocean, A Global Odyssey. And you said, there's another book I really want to write, and I'm going to get right to it. Uh, want to give us some more uh, hints on what that might be about? Well, really, I want to see the book Liz is going to write. <laughs> That, yeah. will, that will be a bestseller for sure. And it should be. Oh, my goodness. But the book that is still going to come out. It will. will be a more personal view. Ocean Odyssey. I tried to step back and be the voice for the ocean and look at the evidence. And, you know, the first third of the book is about here is the ocean. You know, what is water? Where did it come from? Where did the ocean come from? Asking the kinds of questions little kids might ask the hardest questions of all because we don't have answers for some of this, these seemingly straightforward questions. And the second big section is about life in the ocean with a big colorful fold out, the, the kind of the major divisions of animals and plants and microbes, even the fungi that live in the sea and, and the kingdom of life that we didn't know about when Rachel Carson wrote Sea Around Us in 1951, the RKE that are really important in shaping the nature of life, not only in the deep sea, but in our own bodies. They're here. And their existence was not known until the late 1970s. New kingdom of life. Come on. So we're on a roll in terms of knowledge. I tried to take the latest information that people have been learning, oh goodness, and, and, and distill it into 50-word sound bites, thousand-word chunks. You can pick up the book anywhere and, and dive in, if you will, on one topic or another. But the last part is probably the most important part, how the ocean affects us, how we affect the ocean. So the next book will be more about my journey, you know, a, a more personal view. Sea Change did that in 1975 when I tried to look at the ocean, tell the ocean's story from my personal viewpoint. Talked about the kids coming along with Liz and her brother and sister, and we didn't have grandkids in the picture then. Now we do. Gives me a, another thoughtful measure of time. And actually this year, David, a new edition of Sea Change has come out. Texas A&M University Press mm. published it. Has This time has color illustrations and a new forward that I attempted to <laughs> consider the changes, the sea changes in 25 years. So I think I'll try in this new book to anticipate what will what will the world be like in 25 years by the middle of this century and maybe to go beyond? Let's see. Imagine that we're starting the 22nd century as humans measure time, looking back on what we're doing right now and either to be celebrating the wisdom 
of the kids and everybody else, <laughs> really seizing this moment and making Earth, making our relationship with Earth such that there will be a habitable planet in the next century and beyond. Or there might be few sad remnants of human civilization looking back and saying, what were you thinking? Why? What were you thinking? And reflect on, in a sense, the way I reflect back on what I have experienced in my own life. When did we decide to scale up taking fish from the ocean on a, you know, thousands of tons in places that were secure when I was a child, like the waters around Antarctica? It was such a bad idea to start fishing around Antarctica. Absolutely no justification for any indigenous population. No one around the waters of Antarctica relied on krill or deep sea fish. And we still don't. We still don't. But we still, we now allow the carving up of this, one of the last great ecosystems on earth that was intact when I was a child, but we're not leaving it for the next generation in any thing. I mean, in a complete, in a, in a sense that was as good as it could have been had we, had we looked at the evidence. So here we are, 21st century humans, the biggest challenge of any in all of human civilization. What will our story be? I'll look forward to your next book. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Liz and Sylvia, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for your insight and your time. And I'm looking forward to um, just more wonderful words from both of you and all of our efforts together in protecting this beautiful ocean. Maybe we'll bring the grandsons along next time. Maybe. That would be great. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbar. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves are free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true. It's the blue frontier, tear, tear, off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here buddy! Sparky! There you are, good boy Sparky!